the idea that there would be, you know, people that are exploiting typically younger children in positions of vulnerability in, in my eyes is just something that uh, I think of Dr. Martin Luther King that said, you know, for evil to succeed, good men stand by and do nothing. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I just think, why would we ever stand by if this is happening? Today you will meet Ryan Berg, a visionary dedicated to changing lives through the Aruna Project. It's an organization he co-founded with his wife, April, and a passionate commitment to end sex trafficking. The Aruna Project stands as a true beacon of hope. It offers freedom, employment, and true dignity to women who've been trapped in the darkness of sex trafficking. Ryan and his team work in regions heavily impacted by trafficking, both in the United States as well as overseas in Southeast Asia. And they provide survivors with these opportunities for a new beginning, for a new life. Using truly out-of-the-box innovative approaches the whole way through, they also include this creation of an upscale athletic clothing and accessories business that employs only survivors. Now, the Aruna Project not only raises awareness of trafficking, but it also contributes to this lifelong freedom and rehabilitation of those who are affected. Ryan and April Berg and the Aruna Project are truly a testament to the power of hope, of faith, of resilience, and the relentless pursuit of justice. Hi, Ryan, and welcome to How We Change the World. How are you, Deborah? Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I mentioned ahead of time, I'm, I've am i heard about you for quite a, well, about less than a year, but I've been following your work a little bit. Your wife and you have an organization you started, and I and what you're doing has been so, so impactful in the world that uh, I think a lot of people will be interested in and how you started your work and what it means to you and what the impact has been. So thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and explaining it all to us, which I sure. anticipate that you will do. <laughs> sure, um, sure. Okay. So, uh, the, and, and the subject is you help women. I think it's all women who have been trafficked for sex, uh, both, in the United States, as well as overseas. I don't know if there's just a few countries that you work in. I know you're, you've kind of focused in Southeast Asia. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. So is it just one or two countries or how was that? Yeah. So basically we, we decided to um, try and really understand the issue of, of human trafficking, specifically sex trafficking, because uh, human trafficking is a, is a massive mm -hmm. issue. And then there's particular types mm -hmm. and, uh, and we got exposed to what was taking place in the sex trafficking uh, aspect of human trafficking and decided to try and understand it more and to, and to really kind of dive in uh, mm -hmm. to seek to understand why is this happening, who's doing what, where are the gaps, really just to see is there anything that we, that, that we have mm -hmm. that we could offer to bring about change. And so, uh, so we actually started to do a little bit of a survey of different, different mm -hmm. countries, different places. Um, and found, quite honestly, that it's an issue that affects every single country around the world. 
but in some countries, there are certain factors that kind of coalesce, to come together to cause mm-hmm. an environment where it just seems to thrive. Uh, oh. And so in that way, we decided, okay, we're going to focus in on some of those particular areas. So right now we're internationally, we're, we're focused very, very specifically in on um, one particular country that we've got multiple locations in that country, but it's, it is a, uh, the most significant uh, amount of slaves in the world today. And so we decided, okay, we're going to focus in on that. And if we can, if we can help to create some solutions there, then we have the potential to replicate it in other locations. Is there a reason why you're not saying the country name or, I mean, yeah, is that we, a purposeful? Yes. Yeah. We okay. usually, uh, we usually just, you know, we'll typically use names like South Asia. We'll talk about the general region and things like that. Um, Cause as you can imagine, some of the work that we do, um, you know, it's, we're going up against some, some challenging situations. And oftentimes there are some levels of corruption, um, mm-hmm. that, that are in certain areas of authority. And so yeah. typically if there's something like this, it's, you know, more of a broadcast, we just keep things a little okay. bit more general in yeah. terms of locations. That's very wise. Actually. I was about to say what I thought it was, but then I realized, wait a minute, maybe this is <laughs> intentional. So I'm glad, glad that I asked. Um, Okay. You know, I, I, if you, could you talk a little bit about what some of those factors are that would not be identifying to the country necessarily? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, and they're, you know, generally speaking, typically true of what you see with, with human trafficking and then, and then even into sex trafficking. Um, typically there's going to be some sort of, uh, you know, people being displaced in some way, whether that's internal to the country or leading to migration out of a country. So if there's any you, sort you of, you mean they had already been displaced before the sex trafficking? Uh, they the, could be. Yeah. So yeah, if there's, okay. if there's significant displacement and people are in sort of migration or moving, uh, because of something that's happening, typically like war, regional conflicts, okay. things like that, uh, that puts them at very high risk. Um, other, other things where it's not necessarily, you know, movement away, but where they're, where they are locally, uh, would be things like gender inequality, uh, lack of educational opportunity. If there are levels of corruption within, Mm -hmm. uh, authority structures, um, those are, those are some of the key functions. And then obviously once you, once you add in poverty, uh, if if you've got those sort of all of those acting mm-hmm. at the same time, then it 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 puts certain people at very high risk for trafficking. So you know, it, that's really those are very. I, I guess you might expect that uh, from what you said. It kind of makes sense, but I had never really thought about say refugee situation because there's so many, or just internal displacement. I had not really put those together. But of course, it just makes perfect sense. You know, you're just, you're vulnerable. It's when people mm-hmm. are very vulnerable. Um, but we see it also in the United States as well, which I don't, I, I do feel like that's something that people are not still aware of. We hear it sort of tangentially, but we don't hear many specific stories. I happened to meet someone uh, a few months ago who had been trafficked and and it, and and the, the description of how she was trafficked in the U.S. is very different than the one that maybe happens in the, in overseas, especially in Southeast Asia. Can you, and I heard you speak to that on, on another podcast. Can you talk about what that looks like in the U S? Sure. Sure. Bit? So typically in the U S what we've seen, and obviously what a number of other organizations do work here have seen is, um, 
you know, you can refer to it in a number of different ways, but some of the common ways to refer to it is more of a Romeo pimp, where the vast majority of, of those who are trafficked for sex here in the U.S., there's, mm-hmm. there's typically the knowledge or, or some sort of relational proximity to the person who's going to do the trafficking. Now, that's not always the case, right. but but typically that's that's what's yeah. happening. And so uh, there are um, a number of these individuals that are actually, like you mentioned earlier, somebody who's in a position of vulnerability, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who a trafficker recognizes that. And then within that, you know, proximity of that person in, in vulnerability, they'll start to do things where they'll, they'll start to shower praise, they'll start to give a lot of attention, mm-hmm. they'll start to actually in some ways emotionally manipulate and take advantage Mm -hmm. of that vulnerability and then start to, you know, once they're starting to win them over, start to isolate them a little bit and start to kind of Mm -hmm. pull them out of any existing relationships. And once they start to do that, then they even kind of, kind of move a little bit more toward alienating any of those other relationships. So it's, so it's almost kind of driving a wedge between hey, you're great, you're wonderful, they're bad, they're awful. Uh, and then it starts wow. to move into things that become a little bit more illicit. So it might be starting to to show pornography or have sex with them individually, mm-hmm. and then maybe even start into certain substances, illegal substances, just yeah. to get them hooked on things. Um, and eventually they get to the point where they start to desensitize to the to what's taking place, whether it's sexual or whether it's drug use or different things like that. Desensitize them. And then mm. start to slowly introduce this idea of, you know, if you really loved me, you would do this, this, or this. Or, hey, we're running so low on cash. I, I just need you to do Good this gosh. one thing to get enough money so we can get the next hit of, yeah. you know, of, yeah. of meth or whatever it might yeah. be. And at that point, then they, they start down the pathway starting to capitalize on, on, the, uh, wow. on the person who's being trafficked. That so sometimes that can be a long deliberate. process. Yeah, yeah, sometimes it can be a short process. Sometimes it's it's very clearly mapped out. Other times that's just kind of the ebb and flow of how it how it works mm-hmm. itself out. Um, but it's 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 a little bit more um, relationally manipulative, which is oftentimes what can be referred to as as a Romeo pimp. That almost perfectly describes the situation that this woman that I met was in, and and I'm mm-hmm. surprised to hear how deliberate that is. I've never heard of this before about this because that is quite a long, deliberate, well thought out, take some intelligence, take some psychological prowess. You wouldn't think people would be, there'd be that many people who could pull that off, so to speak, but, but it's pretty common in the U S I'm, I'm, I'm asking actually not saying. Yeah. In terms of, in terms of that method, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's, and, and, and again, that mm-hmm. vulnerability, you know, there's, there's a number of, of, you can look at different research and things like that, but one of the, a, a very basic study that's been done is called the, um, adverse childhood experience study that shows where there's certain factors that are absent in a child's life or certain traumas that have been introduced into a child's mm-hmm. life that it can lead in certain pathways that, that make them much more vulnerable. And so, uh, so oftentimes that, that can be a little bit of how they, they're brought into proximity of some mm-hmm. of these people. And oh, so okay. in some of the young women that we've worked with here in the U S, um, that's, that's typically been the case where there's not a very strong, strong or uh, home structure. 
Mm-hmm. And and even drug use within the home, and that's brought in certain okay. people into the home. That, I see. That, yeah, makes it more and, more. Yeah, and it kind of leads likely. down that pathway of of uh, yeah of being trafficked. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to explain that because I I would not have thought of that as trafficking, you know. And so this woman told me she was trafficked, and I thought, well, that's not really trafficked. I mean, just to sort of this back of my mind thought that that doesn't sound like trafficking, but that's but it's good to know because we need to be aware of that people most of the people listening to this program would be in the u.s so that's why i want to kind of put a exclamation point on that yeah and if i could if i could even just add to that typically when the the definition typically is uh, of human trafficking is tied to this idea of authority and vulnerability but more specifically to the idea of force fraud or coercion and so oftentimes when people think of trafficking they think strictly of the idea that it's done through force Yes. But but typically like especially here in the US it, that does happen but more you see the fraud and the coercion. Okay. And much of that Romeo pimp sort of style is is much more driven by coercion and ma- manipulation and eventually gets to the point of fraud and violence. And so after the first or second time or third or fourth time and a young woman starts saying, no, I, I don't want to do this anymore, then is typically where that force and where that fraud comes into place where they'll, they'll be met with physical violence and say, no, you are doing this. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, I've got all these videos, I've got all these pictures, oh. and I'm going to share it all over. Oh. And so then it becomes fraud. So on the U.S. side, it, it can start with a little bit more of an manipulation and coercion, but mm-hmm. it gets almost there. 100% of the time it gets to the point of force and fraud. And perhaps one more point to make on this topic before we move on is that uh, it's not, you, 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 we have both said young women. It's not always young women. It, I mean, right. you could have women in their twenties, thirties, forties, probably that are all still vulnerable, you know, as sure. long as. And, and, and even in that regard, uh, it can be males as well. And mm-hmm. so, um, you, mm-hmm. you know, statistically it's, it's typically going to be a younger female, but mm-hmm. you're absolutely correct that it, it can touch anyone who's in mm-hmm. that position of vulnerability. Yeah. Even young mothers, you know, who are desperate mm-hmm. to support their families. Um, okay. Well, we, we are going to get to the, the work eventually that you, uh, that you are involved in and that the way that you're helping, but, um, I'd like to back up before we go there and talk a little bit about how you became involved in this, because it's, you, you started this, um, and the name of your organization is the Aruna Project, and that's not the, the full story, but that's that's the main organization that you're um, presenting with, I guess we could say. And uh, you started, I think, back in 2009, and we're in 2024, so this has been I could tell by the way you speak about it that you're very educated in this now. But when you started off, you were not. You were you were just trying to fill your way through it. So how did how did it begin for you? How did you maybe stumble upon it, or did you go searching for this mission? Yeah, actually, the we we created the organization in 2014, and so okay. that 20 that 2009 date that you're referencing is when we first got exposed to what was taking okay. place, and then we spent. And when I say we, my wife and I spent about five years trying to understand and trying to do the research and trying to, oh to learn goodness. as much as we possibly could. Unbelievable! And so our, um, yeah, so in 2009, I, I, I was headed overseas for some work okay. and uh, was walking through an airport and saw on a little ticker line that made reference to 12 children being freed from a brothel. 
and it floored me. I had no idea. I didn't know that sex trafficking existed. I didn't oh, know you that didn't. this was taking place. Had no idea in 2009. Hmm. And, uh, and I can't even remember when movies like Taken had come out. I, you know, yeah, I'm not sure. Right. Well, we, you know, people Liam don't Neeson talk was, about it much and, and definitely yeah. not then. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but I remember seeing it for the first time and thinking, if that is happening, how are we not rallying people to, to bring an end to this? And it just so happened that when I got home, I, you know, I Googled and looked up some things online and realized the very place that I was going was a destination location for sex trafficking. And so I told my wife, I said, when I get there, I'm, I'm going to find this. And if there's something that we can do, we have to do something. But that, that phrase, if there's something we can do, I, I, I thought, oh. certainly there's nothing that we're going to oh, be able to do. Really and interesting. So, yeah. yeah, I assumed that, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to find it. And if I do, there's already going to be a lot of, you know, activity. There's already going to be government officials. There's already going to be so oh. many different systems in place to bring about change that there's nothing we're going to be able to do to have an impact. Naivete, you know, because yes. we would, one would expect, one would expect that. And before, yeah. I'm going to back you up just to take a slight other de uh, detour, I guess. When you say, you know, you and your wife, all right, so you're married. I don't know if you had children at the time. Did you have children mm -hmm. at the time? Yes, three. Okay. So you, you have three children? Mm -hmm. So you said, okay, that's beautiful. So there, what was it in your past before that? I, I know that you are, you're a religious um, couple and, you know, a faith, your faith is very important to you. Is that what led you to this, even this thought process? Were you, was it a faith-driven impulse or, and what were you doing before that yeah not, quite honestly. that's very rare what you did you called your wife and you both say okay let's work on this for five years that doesn't happen very often so. yeah we it uh quite honestly deborah i mean it, it, it so the 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 reality is yes we we look at people and think that people are of exceptional value and you know whether you're the CEO of a Fortune 100 company or, you know, wherever else you might find yourself on the economic or leadership ladder, mm -hmm. uh, we think people are of tremendous value. They, they are tremendous value to God and, and that that matters. And so uh, the idea that there would be, you know, people that are exploiting typically younger children mm -hmm. in positions of vulnerability mm -hmm. in, in my eyes is just something that uh, I think of Dr. Martin Luther King that said, you know, for evil to succeed, good men stand by and do nothing. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I just think, why would we ever stand by if this is happening? And so um, from a from a young age, that's just kind of how I've been wired. If you see mm -hmm. something that's, that's okay. being done to someone that's not okay, you intervene. You, you know, you step in and try and do what you can to help. And so we've, we've both kind of had that that's kind of woven into both you know the faith mm. that we share in Christ mm -hmm. and then uh even just kind of the way that we view people. And so for from our perspective once we once we learned about what was taking place again we didn't think that we would be drawn into it to the extent that we have been um but we thought at least at minimum we've got to find we've got mm. to educate ourselves and then see if there is something that we can do to contribute. That's beautiful. I'm that just that if we stopped right now, that would be that would be enough to know that there's a couple and, and the fact that you're, you're working with your wife and that that's part of your relationship. That's part of your 
you know, your life's work now. Um, it's just very, very powerful and very unusual. Does that help the fact that you're doing this as a couple? Is that, is that the strength of it? Has that always been the strength of it? Cause she's fully, you're both fully a hundred percent doing this, right? This is yeah, absolutely. Life. Yeah. Co-founders. We, we started it in our third floor attic of our home. Mm, I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. So we're very, very much, you know, co-founding it together. Uh, she's got gifts and skills that I don't have and vice versa. And so we complement mm -hmm. each other very well. Uh, but we also have to be very intentional about, um, you know, once we get home, work conversation does not continue on into the evening, especially when you're talking about, you know, right. things as violent as, as sex trafficking. And so we try to try to make sure that we've got some good boundaries and, mm -hmm. and try to make sure that we just enjoy uh, some of the other joys of life together sure. and, uh, and being able to experience just the joy of marriage together. And it's a it's an important point I think for anybody who's trying to to make a change in this world and you know that you do have to uh separate you know you still you still have to find the joy in life you can't focus so much on the even the work that you're doing as important as it is that you have to stop that and and separate your put a boundary between your personal life because it can pull you down you know any kind sure. of work that you're doing that is this troubling it's this heart-wrenching can overwhelm you. You get compassion fatigue. You get a lot of things, and you actually take it on and absorb it. I know. I certainly absorb people's pain, and I, I'm not very good at making that boundary. So, um, it's just it's just an important thing to do for the longevity of a situation. Absolutely. So, so uh, what happened then when you when you first so you you see you you see this story happening on the ticker. You go home and you talk about you about it with your wife. Then you say you're. The place that you're going to is one of those places. What do you do next? Yeah, so we, so I had a number of meetings and uh, and decided in between those meetings to to try and actually find one of these particular locations and uh, found this particular area. And from the sights and smells and sounds, it was, you know, it was a it was a very difficult area. Um, you mean the whole neighborhood in general? Whole neighborhood, as you're, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the whole neighborhood and, you know, just uh, the quality of life in this particular area sure. and um, found this particular entranceway. And, and this is a public brothel. So you've got people coming in and out of this. It's all illegal, but um, it is illegal. OK, that's 100 percent illegal. Yeah. OK. And but in this particular entrance kind of made my way up through this entrance mm -hmm. and it was really, really dark inside. And as I start up the stairs, I can start to hear the sound of abuse. And, and once I got to the top of the staircase and it opened up into the hallway, there were literally just these, you know, closet sized rooms with just mattresses and pool curtains and, and young women that were, they were physically there, but they were, they were, you know, mentally and emotionally um, in, in a completely other place. And so. How, wait, uh, how are you, how are you allowed to, I mean, did you just pose that you were going in as a customer and they said, go on up? Or did, how did you, how were you able to get gain access? Yeah. So it's really interesting the way that some of these sort of, you know, internationally, it looks different again than it does typically here in the U S sure. um, and in this particular building. So there, the, some of the different buildings operate differently, um, you know, from building to building, region to region, nation to nation, they, you know, sure. it can look very sure. different culturally. And yeah. in this particular building, um, this sort of entryway, the way that the system works, that there would be someone who goes to the to the countryside, you know, tells all these stories about young women having great work in the city, 
very deceptive. And that's, that's kind of the initial trafficker that will then bring that young woman uh, and, and sell mm-hmm. them to the brothel owner. The brothel owner will typically keep them kind of tucked into the internal parts of this brothel, sometimes, you know, even actually in like boxes. Um, and then from there, once they're broken, they're then handed over to someone who oversees the hallways. And once they've been in that hallway setting for sometimes it can be weeks, sometimes it can be months, they're eventually then released to work the streets in a street level pimp. And so there's a very sort of organized hierarchy of how the system works. And so for those, for the entrance into that doorway to get up into that hallway level, it's because it is a public brothel, people are just in and out, you know, walking out all the time. And so the pimps are, you know, they're trying to broker people in, kind of broker deals, talk about, you know, what girls they have inside. And and so it's it's a very active area. But it's a, it's also a very violent area. So no one questions you. You were just able to go in and look around, see what, see who was there. So there's no one protecting them. Yeah, once I, once I got into that, that sort of floor level, um, you know, they, they recognized that we were there for So were you made us leave? Oh, they did. Well, were yeah. you able to speak to any of the girls or anything at that point? Not at that point. No, it was more just visually seeing what was taking place and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of understanding that dynamics of what was mm-hmm. going on in terms right. of sort of the hierarchy. Um, and it, 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 it was all I needed to see to, yeah. you know, to be just devastated I was inside ask you and how think, you felt. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It was, it was overwhelming. I had never seen anything like it before. I've never, I had up to that point had never, had never seen. Mm-hmm. slavery before face to face and little did i know that it would it, i would spend you know Change years in in environments like that you know in total you know trying to, to help create freedom so did you know at that moment that you were going to to actually take some serious action did you feel so moved by that experience that it was sort of a given yeah pretty much it was it was uh there was no way i could walk away as a matter of fact i remember um coming once i got back to the u.s the the faces of some of those young women were just i mean they were so clear in my mind Mm. and i remember trying to voice that to to april my wife and and she was like, well, what do you think we should do? You know, she was, she was right in like, all right, well, what are we going to do about it? And, uh, and so, which was, which was really encouraging for me to just know, all right, if, if we're going to be in it, we got to be in it together. And she's, she's ready to go. Wow. This is very emotional. <laughs> it really, it's beautiful that you, that you found this in each other and found the strength in each other to start. So then that's it. Then what was the next step? And then, what, you know, I do want to get to what you do today, but it, 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 it's really, it really is helpful, I think, to go through your stages and how this began because it uh, kind of drives home when you want to make a change in the world. You know, it, there's a lot of different ways it may present itself to you, the opportunity. And, um, you know, I, I would think that a lot of people might have the opposite reaction that I just, this is too much for me. This is too hard. The trauma is too great. You're seeing these faces, you get home, you know, they're kind of haunting you. And, and to think that's just the beginning of what you're going to see is 
it's not easy. So it took, took a lot of courage. Um, yeah, and I, I think, you know, to your point, the, uh, the initial, um, initial stage for us was to try and learn. We, yeah. we knew, we recognized there is a whole lot that we don't understand here. And so we really need to seek to understand, you yeah. know, a lot of what's happening here before yeah. we even think that we mm -hmm. can start to, you know, mm -hmm. share any ideas or thoughts right. about any potential solutions. And so, yeah. um, so I actually went back uh, for a handful of months without uh, April and the kids, mm -hmm. um, and just tried to, to try to understand. So I met with government officials, nonprofit leaders, women wow. in the area, asked a thousand questions, mission, vision, values, methods, constraints, anything we could to try and understand why is this happening, mm -hmm. and who's doing what, where are the gaps, what solutions are working, what aren't, where's the sort of proof of sustainability. Uh, and the biggest uh, sort of wrestling point that came out of all of that was how how high the retrafficking rates were. And what do you so mean by retrafficking? Yeah. So what we learned was uh, pretty quickly that if if a if a young woman, for example, were you know forcibly rescued, so somebody came in and, and did a raid and got her out, and at that point, if there was not a really good follow-up structure in place, what could happen is within a matter of, you know, two, three months, she could be re-trafficked. If, if there weren't a number of sort of key components in place, then Makes the re-trafficking rates were extraordinarily high. Yeah. And so we started to look at that and think, okay, there, there's got to be a better way to actually create lifelong freedom. And the more we started to wrestle with it and have conversation about it, the more people said, well, you realize the depth of that journey and how long that journey is going to take. And so there's, there's a lot of funding that goes in the front end of okay. doing an operation to get a girl out and then you kind of move on. And mm -hmm. that girl then, you know, what are the next steps yeah. for that young girl? And Wait, I just, so even I, if they, even if they go back to their family, they're still vulnerable. Uh, they can be, yeah, especially yeah. if and, – and that's one of the key components is you have to have to make sure that there's a, a really strong relational dynamic that's going to want to okay. help her succeed. Yeah. There's also got to be physical proximity to where it's she's no longer in proximity to somebody that may have trafficked in the past or may have been abusive in the past that put her initially in the position okay. of vulnerability. Some, I know that sometimes parents do – or relatives or cousins or something will actually be part of the selling process in certain cultures. Right. So, right. so you're talking a very complex situation that you're trying to solve, like yes. determine whether they have a good relationship, whether it's safe, all these things. Do the yeah. And as a matter of fact, what we ended up doing is we, we, you know, through that research, um, and some of this is from the State Department's Tracking a Persons Report, the International Labor Organization, mm -hmm. you know, professional trauma counselors, and, and tried to, you know, and a number of nonprofits on the ground and tried to pull together all the information. And we then developed something that we refer to as our four pillars of holistic care. Okay. And we said anything that we create has to be undergirded by these four pillars to ensure 
for sustainable lifelong freedom. Mm -hmm. And so we decided, all right, we're going to start with a business that's going to be the end goal. And then we're going to work our way backwards right up to the front door of those brothels and try and make sure that we're creating a a very clean process step by step by step that is done in partnership with other organizations, but is absolutely airtight so that we have those pillars of holistic care making sure that she doesn't fall through, making sure that she's not re-trafficked. And, uh, and I would say by God's grace, we've seen a significant reduction in those re-trafficking rates and we're operating at a, at a very high percent of, of lifelong freedom. So, uh, and, and, and part of that's through the process, but also part of that is, is the tremendous perseverance that these young women have to be able Mm -hmm. to go through what they've gone through and be in their, you know, be able to to come out the other side and actually thrive is absolutely incredible. This is amazing. So let so you start with the business and the business is Aruna. So so Correct. that's the first step that you took. Let's establish a business to to create the funds that will allow for whatever's gonna happen next to to happen. This is very long range thinking. I don't know if I've ever heard of anyone doing this before. Uh, even in a regular business, it's usually so much faster. So this is so well thought out. No wonder it's working so well. Um, well, we initially, uh, quite honestly, we thought through the business concept and we thought, okay, we're, we're you know, when you look at the athleisure, so Aruna is a, is a yeah. premium athleisure bags and accessories brand. And we, we were looking at the athleisure industry and we're saying, okay, the compounded, you know, annual growth rate of this is really healthy. You know, there's good margins on the product, the, the cultural, you know, sort of dynamics happening in the West. This has staying power. We thought, okay, this is a good business opportunity. And then we were looking at some of the, the cultural realities, what was happening here in the West, especially with millennial and Gen Z, uh, that hmm. were saying they would shift brands for a good cause. And right. how much they value human impact. So we thought there's a really good business case to be made for creating mm. this business that's going to employ 100% of our products would be made by trafficking survivors. So it provides for, for these young women because there's a market of the products that they could produce. And so pitched it to a group of investors and they were like, this is crazy. This is impossible. Huh. And so we thought, okay, well, we've got to figure out another way to actually create the seed capital to launch the business. And so Wait, that, why did they why did they not see the the viability of that business model? Why did they think that was crazy? Sure, yeah, primarily because of the the nature of of the environment that the people that we were going to be employing in the business were coming oh, out of. They didn't think they could be sustainable employees in in a sense. Right. Yeah. They, okay. they just thought All the right. trauma's too great. The lack yeah. of education, you know, trying to do it internationally, you're not going to be able to hit the quality yeah. or the throughput that's necessary to, okay. to be, make it profitable. So they didn't see your vision. They, they weren't seeing what you were seeing. They, they saw the social value. They didn't necessarily right. no, see, they didn't see the, the uh, business value. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, All right. Continue. <laughs> and so, interestingly, now, and you know, and that's that's okay. I, you sure. Know, uh, what happens? And so, yeah, you know, allowed us to kind of think a little bit more creatively, where we brought in mm. and basically combined the best of nonprofit and business together into our yeah. current model. Yeah. And so, what we did on the on the nonprofit side, and, and you know, there's plenty of for profits that have a nonprofit arm. We're actually a nonprofit that has yeah. a for profit arm. And part of that is is to actually even preserve some of the mission of what we're doing is is 
so that 100% of, the, of, of what's coming through into the business goes right back in to try and, and you know, ensure that we're freeing and employing and empowering more women. And so what we did is we started on the nonprofit side with these Aruna runs all across the U.S. and designed them to be volunteer-led, created out uh, resources, online training mechanisms, everything like that. To, well, say for, what those are. Say what an Aruna run is. It's maybe not as obvious as it sounds. Sure. It's a physical so, run, right? It's like yeah, a race, yeah, it's running race. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's a it's a 5K run or it can you can have a one mile, you can have a 10 mile, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. But it's a run and people can run, they can walk. Uh, but the whole the whole concept is how we've developed it is you mm -hmm. run or walk for for a young woman that we're mm -hmm. working to set free. Brilliant. And all of the money and the awareness that gets raised through those runs then goes into the next step of this sort of flywheel model that we've created where it's it goes into our training centers. And so our training centers are in the heart of multiple areas of, of high trafficking. And it's through those training centers that we actually, our teams are going in to help create the pathway out for women. And, and once those women are then freed, they step into an apprenticeship program that has trauma counseling. It's got skill and trade development, uh, transitional housing, individualized care plans and and that's kind of the last stage of the nonprofit side and once they've moved through those stages we then offer them employment in the for-profit side and in the business they've they've already been trained up to you know in soft goods manufacturing um, they've gone through significant amount of trauma counseling and so as they step into the business they're they're earning uh, a career wage retirement savings access to health care and then we also make sure that we still have some of the uh, the particular trauma-informed workplace that we're trying to do. So we continue on with those individualized care plans uh, just to make sure that the, oh, the women are able to continue to meet, that meet their was, needs. That's a lot. That was a lot you just said. And it's a lot that you've done. I just want to I want to unpack that just a little bit more because sure. there's a whole lot in there. Um, so you started, you raised the money. You raised the, you started these runs, which is brilliant to think of one person. So you have like a picture of a woman, a story of a young girl or a woman who's been trafficked and a person who runs, do they specifically know who that is? Or do they just say, I'm running for a woman or I'm running for a person? Or do they yeah, know? Yeah, we, we actually have uh, something we refer to as ethical storytelling. So we don't share names or right. faces or anything like that okay. unless we're given permission. Mm -hmm. uh, and so every one of the women that we're working with has a pseudonym. And so that pseudonym will be I used see. for, so if somebody ran in a run, they're running for the pseudonym of Reshma, uh, an individual. And so mm -hmm. you're running specifically for that individual. I just think and that's so, brilliant. Just, and, I, and it we, makes me feel one, like I want to go run right now. Cause I, it's never personal when you run for yeah. something that's, yeah. I've never even heard anything like this. And you know, that's amazing. Well, and, and, and part of the reason we did it is because when we started doing all of the research, so much of the research was always just about the numbers and numbers right. and numbers. Exactly. And so it, in, in our thinking, it was kind of like this kind of perpetuates the dehumanization uh, of trafficking itself. And so we want to uh, bring the humanity back to this. Yeah. And we want to say these are individuals. Mm -hmm. that's and so huge. that's kind of the key, one of the key components, yeah. My goodness. Okay. So you raised the money. You started raising money from these races over, over time mm -hmm. as you were developing the process. And then. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. So right. like in that, that, that five-year gap, 2009 yeah. to 214, that's what we were doing with these runs. We were kind of developing out these runs, um, you know, before we were able to actually launch the, the actual entity. So how are you managing it in the, in the country where you're working? How were you then, what was the, how was it developing on that end of things? Yeah, we were, we were spending a lot of time with, with partner organizations. We were okay. trying to figure out what their operations were and how to actually help their operations succeed. Locally. Uh, yes, locally. locally okay. So that then as we launched the, the business side, we were already helping to create that sort of pipeline or pathway of freedom oh. into the business. So that that was really brilliant, also. So because you know, I was when I had read about what you were doing ahead of time before we started speaking. I'm thinking, how does a you know a man, first of all, from the U.S. who's white, walk into this foreign country and try to talk these girls into getting? You know, this is what I was envisioning: is that you're going in and saying, "Hey, you know, I've got some. We've got something better to offer you than this life." But you didn't start that way. Some partner organizations were doing that. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, that makes the, so much more sense. Yes. My my time spent in inside some of those places mm -hmm. is more to confirm what some of the, the young women are hearing through some of the organizations and then obviously through our own mm -hmm. organization, what our teams are communicating. So we have, you know, indigenous leaders that are mm -hmm. actually doing that work. Yeah. And anytime I'm spending time in there, it's it's for me to kind of understand what the nature of kind of this particular area is like mm -hmm. uh, to see if there's any different sort of strategic dynamics that we would we would incorporate. But but it's also if I'm engaging with any of the young women in that in that setting, it's mm -hmm. to confirm what's already been said that, hey, there's okay. this U.S. company, there's a job opportunity. Um, OK, so it's yes, I'm the I'm not the lead. Yeah. Yeah. person in, in connecting with them. Well, the, the people who are doing that work, how do they uh, convince, like, I don't, you probably can't talk in too much detail, but just maybe generally speaking, how do they approach the young girls or women that are, some of them, you know, I know from, as I said, we have mutual friends, Sarah Davis and Tracy, who wrote a book about, um, about this, about Nepal specifically, um, and Untouchable class of women who who were at high risk for being trafficked and and her story was about how they were actually being rescued by by their own um and in that book she talks about the numbers and and the ages you know maybe just even girls younger than 10 are being trafficked um which is hard to even say out loud and also uh just the numbers and the and the lifelong sentence that it is they typically are not freed ever until they're so old that they're they're not able to bring in any more business and then they're you know basically left to die somewhere so for you to be able to go in your organization or these partner organizations it's a it's a big thing to break someone from that, to give them the faith, to give them the value uh, that they even have value, the idea that they even have any value as a human being anymore. Because you, you referred to something earlier, which I didn't really want to ask about, but I will ask about when you said they're broken, you know, sometimes put in a, in a box and broken, psychologically broken, I'm, I'm assuming you mean, right? Yeah, absolutely. The um, it, It's hard for me to... to to truly express in words the 
depth and the impact, negative impact that the trauma has on, on the way it affects some of the young women. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's really hard to put it into words. If you would see kind of the first point of engagement inside that brothel, mm -hmm. uh, and just how dehumanized, uh, some of them have become, um, but then conversely to actually see where many of them are now, you, you wouldn't even think they're the same person. It's, really? it is absolutely incredible when you see all of the transformation that has taken place. And when you see, you know, many of them that have, have stepped in, they're now team leaders within our company, others that have stepped beyond our company, some that have gotten their master's degrees, some that have uh, gotten married, they've started their families, some, some even that have started their own, you know, businesses back in their villages. Uh, it, it, it's pretty incredible. And again, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a testament to their, their perseverance, their strength, their, you know, yeah. continued pursuit of healing. Uh, Humans are resilient. They are. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It is very amazing. So somehow they're able to convince them that there's, I mean, do they have to kidnap them to get them out or do they talk no. them into it? Yeah. Is it and we, and we never, we never, I, you know, I guess I'm, I'm, I don't mean to use that term, but I mean, I'm just wondering if they're free to choose to go or if they're being held there. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's typically a very complex sort of scenario. I, mm -hmm. Again, it depends on individual. It depends on the, the pimp, the hallway, the broth owner, you okay. know, a number of different scenarios, but generally speaking, mm -hmm. um, if she's under the age of 18 in this particular region of the world, if she's mm -hmm. under the age of 18, there has to be some sort of operation that takes place where you're going to go in and actually try and free by force. Okay. But you have to have government involvement in that process. Mm -hmm. And then it goes into a government process of aftercare. And okay. some of those systems and processes are, are just not very good. And, and sometimes those involved in some of the work are also corrupt. And so, so that can be a real challenge. Mm -hmm. If they're over the age of 18, Mm -hmm. uh, then the whole dynamic changes because okay. over the age of 18, they're typically going to be prosecuted for prostitution, oh. even if they were, they were trafficked oh. there against their choice. Really? And so over the age of 18, you're typically not involving, uh, you know, government officials and things like that. Um, and so instead, if the operative word under the age of 18 is like a raid, the the word over the age of 18 is more relationship and so that's where we're you know the teams are our, our teams are showing up on a daily basis and and just simply saying there is a pathway out there is opportunity here's how this process works and usually what happens is there there tends to be these sort of moments in time and i won't go into all the details but usually we try and engage a what uh, we refer to as a secondary issue. And so for a young woman who's maybe inside that brothel, who has a child back in the village, who really needs some medicine, uh, we try with her to figure out what do you think a good solution would be? And so the whole idea is what we're trying mm -hmm. to do is team up with her to show her uh, respect, team up with her to work through a problem together that's mm -hmm. deeply meaningful to her. Right. And, you know, obviously that child means something to us as well. And so to try and actually work together to bring like a, like a good resolution there. So we're providing something that's, that's really helping her. 
that helps to develop a level of trust to where when we start saying things like, hey, and there's a job opportunity for your future, mm-hmm. she months, maybe even years ago, mm-hmm. has stopped hoping that there right. is any hope for her future. And so there's even, trauma counselors will tell you this, there's even pain in reopening potential hope oh, because course. if it crashes again. And so it's a, it's a very big step for them to start hope again and potentially start trusting in what we're saying. Yeah. So part of that is we meet a need and then we start to develop some of that trust. And oftentimes we start to see when a, when a young woman will, yeah. will share with us her real name, not her call name, or she'll start to, to, to ask questions a little bit more about the potential future. Uh, we start to see once those things start to happen, uh, we start to notice pretty quickly that we're, we're close to the, to the freedom. And then the freedom is very anticlimactic, very anticlimactic. It's so, again, if she's over the age of 18, it's typically going to be, um, you know, when no one else in this brothel is awake, uh, tomorrow we're going to, you know, we're going to help you get out and it's just going to be quick. It's going to be fast. If you've got anything of value, we're going to be gone. You said earlier that if they're over 18, they can be prosecuted for prostitution. Mm-hmm. Um, so do they know that, is that a potential thing? It just, it, it's hard to even imagine that that would be, because the government knows that they've been there, not of their own volition, but regardless. When they come out at 18 or over, what happens next? Is there, how does anyone know that to prosecute them or do they really actually do that? And, and and how does that happen? What how does that unfold? Sure, yeah. It uh, again, it kind of depends on who um, who the authorities are that are there. Okay. Um, and so it, it, there's layer upon layer of challenge. A number of these women mm-hmm. uh, don't actually have birth certificates, and so in effect, they don't they don't exist within the system. Oh. And so that makes them far easier to be trafficked. And right. what it also does is if they're, if they're picked up on suspicion of prostitution and then they're taken to a jail and they're going to try and process them through for prosecute or for and prosecute, uh, they've got no real record of them. Yeah. And so then they kind of get stuck into this system of mm-hmm. not being able to identify where they're from, not being able to identify who they're mm-hmm. connected to. And, and sometimes they can almost kind of remain in jail indefinitely. Oh, they do? Really? And, and so... Yeah, it can be, oh. it can just be, it's a very complex sort of compounding issue. Yes, I can see that. And, yeah. and probably the best way to summarize it is um, if a girl's over the age of 18 and she hears that police are coming into the brothel, she is running or hiding as best or as fast as she can to stay as far away from those police as possible. So they do occasionally go in and, and uh, break up a brothel or try to mm-hmm. put an end to it. Okay. Uh, so, all right. So you've, um, I kind of get lost in the stories and I forget that we need to move on, but <laughs> we, um, so, so you, you have them out someone, you know, they've, they've released the somehow and, and maybe gotten them out of jail or whatever the case may be. And then is there a place where you, where you have set up then? And I guess this is again, through partners, like a safe house or a, whatever you'd like to call it. 
were they safe immediately? Yeah. So, so we've got, we've both got partners and then we've also got our, our, our own work. And so we work, mm-hmm. you know, back and forth together. And so from our training centers inside those brothel systems that are creating freedom, those are Aruna training centers. And then we have an Aruna apprenticeship oh, program okay. where, uh, where once a young woman is freed, she can come to that training center program or to that apprenticeship program and, and she has transitional housing there. Um, and so we'll have young women that are coming there directly from our work to help get them out. Uh-huh. But then we've also got women that are coming from other organizations that have helped to create freedom. Um, and they're, they're able to land in this apprenticeship program, get, uh, transitional housing, the trauma counseling, skill and trade development. Uh, and right now that skill and trade development is primarily focused in on soft goods manufacturing because of Aruna being a, a, a premium athleisure brand. What we're working on, and this is, this is something into the future, is trying actually to develop out different pathways into other industries of interest where there's already really strong businesses that exist. And so... Uh-huh. What we're working on is trying to actually develop out partnerships with some of those existing businesses mm. and and then help create on ramps into those other businesses so that the constraint of just the growth of our own business doesn't right. become a significant oh, constraint good point. to the very amount of women point. being free. So, so like what would be an example of another business? Just another business in the same making the same products that you make or a different just yeah, part Anything? of what we're thinking is is complete, like totally different industries. Okay, so not yeah. even soft goods manufacturing, right. but you know, a hospitality industry or a culinary okay. industry, yeah, you sure. know, a number of others. I mean, and part yeah. of that would be that those businesses would engage with us through that apprenticeship program, yeah, uh, to make sure that they're getting the the proper training and skills that are necessary. This is so so well orchestrated and thought out especially as you think to the future that you're, you you can't even keep up with the, you know, eventually you won't be able to keep up with your own business employing them because there's so many people being freed and getting through the process. So, um, you know, let's, uh, let's talk about those products a little bit because you, you've made also the very intentional decision to make it sustainable and to make the products um, I don't know if they're recyclable as much as they are sustainable, but they're, it's an eco-friendly brand. Um, was that part of the uh, attracting, well, obviously attracting sales? You talked about Gen Z and, and Gen X and, and the, them really wanting to purchase products. It, was that part of your intention? Was it Was it because you wanted to be sustainable or was it because you wanted uh, – because you knew it would be marketable, more marketable to the audience. Well, one of, one of our core values is people over product. And so what we mean by that, and that goes the whole way down our entire value chain. And so for us, we didn't want fabric suppliers that had any sort of questionable labor practices within their supply oh, chain. Oh. And so for us, we basically said, if, oh. if we're an anti-trafficking organization that values people, we need to make sure that even the suppliers that we're trying to pull in fabric from okay. that that we're aligned in terms yeah, of that morally, the values. Yeah. So 
there's something referred to as blue sign certification related to fabric um, okay. and, you know, and companies that produce fabric. Mm-hmm. And essentially, and I'm going to summarize a really long process, but that blue sign certification has to do with things being like eco-friendly standards and, um, and making okay. sure that, that that supply chain, that there aren't questionable labor practices. Okay. So for us, we, we said, okay, we're going to, we're going to utilize blue sign certified fabrics as much as we're possibly able. Mm-hmm. And we're going to use recycled materials as much as we're possibly able. Uh, but that also comes as a cost. There's a, there's a sure, cost of a doing premium. business that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so for example, if we're, if we're importing, uh, because in our particular area, there are no blue sign certified companies. So if we're importing that fabric mm. in, we get hit with a massive duty oh. tax uh, okay. just to get it inside the country. And then we get hit with another, you know, duty tax uh, once we bring it into the U.S. to actually sell it. So, um, but we've basically just said, all right, we know that we're going to have to work that into our margin structure. We know that that's just the cost of doing business the way that we want to do mm. it. Yeah. Um, and it and it certainly makes it more challenging. It certainly yeah. makes it more difficult. We have to be uh, pretty focused in, in how we execute. Well, and people pay premiums. They're willing to pay premiums when they know that it's sustainable, when they know it's organic, when they know it's, you know, not doing harm, when you're not harming people. So there there is that knowledge out there and there's a market out there. So that's fortunately, but I know it's still a tremendous challenge for you. Um I didn't even realize how long I, I kind of got so taken with your whole story. So um, I hope I'm not going on too long. I, I But I want to get to a couple more quick things. Um, first of all, so these women in uh, where you're working are, are, are creating the manufacturing process and they're working in the manufacturing process in this country. What about women in America? What are they doing? Is that a different setup? Yep. Totally different setup. Yeah. So here, here it's much more, um, it's once all that product comes in, uh, it's oh. basically doing all of the operations on the back end. So it's oh, bringing that really? product in, doing huh. all of the quality control check. Hmm. It's doing all the inventory management, getting it all tagged, getting it prepped, getting it put into the systems. Uh, okay. and then, and then even on the order fulfillment side, it's, once an order gets placed, it's it's pulling it out. It's making sure that it's it's tagged and it's ready to go. So it's hmm. it's one of the last set of hands that touches it before it actually gets to the end customer. Oh, I I didn't even realize you were going to say they were also working in the same the same business. I didn't get that. So that's fantastic. So yeah. wow, that's so interesting. And the items that you sell, they're backpacks, purses. Uh, what else? Do you, what other type of items do you sell? Yeah, so we've got uh, we've got backpacks, we've got duffels, we've got crossbodies, um, mm-hmm. you know, purses. We've got uh, different hair accessories, um, okay. and all of them are designed to be a little bit. Uh, they're elevated athleisure, so we refer to them as premium athleisure. So the design is to be used not just you know kind of an athleisure feel with leggings or something like that, mm-hmm. but also to be able to actually carry over into the workplace to carry out, okay. you know, into yeah. a nice evening out on the town, oh. um, to be able to travel, you know, mm-hmm. weekend or a week or two weeks. And so we try mm-hmm. to make sure that they're, they're very, very well done, uh, high quality, but also really strong functionality and really good aesthetic. Yeah. That's, I'm actually eager to know about it because I wasn't familiar with the brand. Is it sold online specifically? Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
at arunaproject.com. And then we've got some select retailers. Um, oh, do you? But, uh, but we basically tried to, to just operate direct to the customer because of mm -hmm. the, the margin, you know, margin. because of our margin structure. Yeah, and, right. uh, and it's, it's been really exciting to see our last, uh, five months in 2023 where we were, consistently hitting record sales. Oh, that's really uh, exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just neat to see. And, and it's a fairly good size operation in the U.S., right? Do you say have 30 some employees? Did I see that? So we've got a uh, total, we've got about uh, the total operation. We've got about mm -hmm. 125 employees. Oh, between here and overseas? Here is overseas. Okay. Yeah. All yeah. right. And are, is it, is it not well known where I, because when I'm thinking the U.S., so women are all over the country that are being trafficked. Do they come yeah. to your op where you are? You're in Pennsylvania. I, We're in Cincinnati, or? Ohio. So oh, our 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 U.S. engagement really only is kind of with, local currently within just our tri-state area. Okay. Um, again, part of that is you know our our sort of future plan and direction of where we want to go is where mm -hmm. we really want to to start to aggressively pursue scaling Aruna. Do you? Um, because we just know that the the we've been able to actually see the impact that it has. We've been able to to sharpen in some of the things that help truly create lifelong freedom. And so, uh, so we're at the point now where we think, okay, if we can if we can actually scale, then the amount of additional impact for others is that's very is exciting. significant. So very 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 exciting. Um, are you unique in this? I, I have not heard about this model before. Is this something I know you invented it, you, you in April, but have others emulated it or are you still quite unique in, in what you're doing in the way that you're creating? Uh, I would say as far as like um, athleisure, an athleisure company who's 100% of our products are made by freed women, um, we're extraordinarily unique. Uh, as far as businesses like freedom businesses that are employing women who have been freed, uh, we're actually one of, of many. There's oh. a sort of on the board of directors of something called the Freedom Business Alliance. And there's, a, there's probably 110 businesses in okay. different countries that are a part of the Freedom Business Alliance that are that are doing similar things. They're, now, some of them are on a very early stage. Okay. Uh, different types of products. Uh, many of those products are not imported to the U.S. for a Western audience. They're more mm -hmm. localized. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of variation Many models those, those mm -hmm. businesses. Um, but but it's exciting to see. It's exciting to actually it's, see that, that there is some growth in it. It's so, so, so exciting. Well, um, I had mentioned our friends Sarah Davis and Tracy other, uh, earlier, and she runs an organization called Seeds of Exchange, um, where she does sort of joint fundraising for a number of different groups every, I think, six times a year. And and that's how you came to my attention that January and February of 2024, right now, as this will this will air at the beginning of February, um, she, she's all of her funds are going to support a project that you are trying to get off the ground or going to get off the ground, uh, a specific project. Can you describe what that is? Yeah, it's is. actually that that apprenticeship program. It's it's basically trying to advance some of those some of those next stages and phases of that apprenticeship program to help create multiple pathways for women into sustainable. Oh, employment. okay. So now we're talking back 
overseas when you're saying, cause you're kind yeah. of maybe hitting the limits of, of the women's of the work that you can support. So, mm -hmm. so anyone who donates to this fund will help support finding new pathways for them. Is that essentially yeah, sustainable employment? Yes. Yeah. Our, our whole, our whole mission is to create lifelong freedom. And so, uh, whether that's with us in the, in Aruna and what we're producing, or whether that's somebody who goes into Aruna and then steps beyond us, or if somebody comes into an Aruna for a period of time and then lands in into another place, as long okay. as the key components of that holistic, those four pillars of holistic care are mm -hmm. present, uh, and they're no longer at risk for being re-trafficked, then we consider that success. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be with Aruna; it can be with with other sure. entities. Wow. So if someone wanted to support you to keep this going, to grow it, they could either go to Aruna Project, which is A-R-U-N-A project.org. No, dot com. Dot com. Dot com, correct. Yeah, because yeah. this dot is com. the business side of it. And by the way, I'm going to have these links everywhere on social, uh, on the show notes and on our website in case anybody, it's hard to remember sometimes. But um, sure. so if so any, but any product, so if I go buy a duffel bag on arunaproject.com. <laughs> um, what is, is there a way that you say what percentage or how much of that product, you know, how much of the profit would go? I don't know if that's something you can, uh, sure. Specify. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, uh, it, basically we, we try and keep the, keep it pretty clean. So when okay. somebody purchases that duffel, the purchase price of that duffel, uh, that money all goes right back into that freedom business. And so that's paying for her salary. It's paying for the ongoing oh. uh, holistic care it's paying for. So for example, I, I don't make any money through the nonprofit. I get paid through the, through, or I don't make any in the for-profit. I only get paid through the nonprofit side. Oh, I um, see. Because so it's literally a hundred percent of it goes to back to the, yeah, that's, the that's process. the way we've designed it. And so, okay. And so that, that for-profit is considered one of the programs underneath our nonprofit. And so we can make sure that those, that sales revenue continues to, to fund the, wow. the lifelong freedom of citizens. Okay. All right. What do you, what do you call this? It's not a social enterprise, is it? Would, or is it? Would you yeah. call it that? Okay. Yeah. yeah. We would call it a social enterprise for sure. And, and, you know, it is a little bit unique. I mean, we've, we've, we try and make sure the finances are split a little bit, uh, you know, just to make sure that we can, we can track it clearly. Um, you know, and it, and it makes it challenging at times because sometimes people say, well, should I, should I buy a product or should I donate? Like, which, do you both. know, what should I do? And that's exactly how we respond. <laughs> We're like, you can do both. You can help donate and yeah. fund to the nonprofit side right. and you can purchase to help sustain. And we, we look at it literally as you can help accelerate freedom and you can help sustain freedom. That's kind of how the two sides operate together. Okay. So you're pro uh, the people that are paid, maybe you in April, or I, I don't know who all is involved in the nonprofit or how many salaries is that um, that's supported through donation. It's not supported from some outside source or anything. Correct. That's just yeah, that true donation. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I will definitely have, so seeds of exchange, um, org and well, has a, if you go on there and you click on donate, you will see a description of this specific project that we're talking about that you would just describe. Um, that's one way to help. Another way is just to go to arunaproject.org.com. I am so sorry. I'm going to, I wish okay. I could go in and edit my words um, and, uh, and purchase a product 
And that's very clean. That's a very clean way to do it. Or you could also go, this this uh, fundraiser through Seeds of Exchange is only through February. After that, what is the best way if you don't want to buy a product, but you simply want to donate directly? Where do they yeah, go? Yeah, we actually have on at arunaproject.com, there's a, there is a right at the top in the, uh, on the website, you can actually click to donate and it goes okay. right into the nonprofit side as well. Okay. So when you go to arunaproject.com, yeah, you can purchase product or you can donate either one. And if there's really adventurous folks that they can even <laughs> apply to host in Aruna Run and it comes in through now, a process. Tell and, me more about that because that gets my attention. Anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we were constrained to the U.S. just because okay. of the, the nature of how the, how the U.S. nonprofit works. Um, but uh, typically what will happen is somebody applies to host an event, uh, it drops into our system, that gets vetted. And then one of our teammate, uh, team people on the team reach out and uh, do an interview process. And after okay. that, if somebody is, is steps in as a race host, then we do a whole online training. We supply a number of material hmm. resources and a whole coaching booklet on how to execute. And then we actually even assign a particular run run coach to help walk you through the process. And so... Uh, so it's a ton of fun. We've had these runs, I think, in maybe 35 different cities across the U.S. Have you? I'm surprised uh, I haven't heard yeah. of it. So okay. it's, it's a lot of fun. All right. How, how long do people usually take to plan those? Like a year or some six months uh, or something? Yeah, or? yeah it kind of depends. You know, if, yeah. if, uh, if they've got a group of people, it obviously goes, goes yeah. much faster. If it's just yeah. one person, that becomes a little yeah. more challenging. Okay. All right. And where would they learn about that on a loop? A, 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 you tell me where would they yeah. go to get more information about again it's just one. on on the website so you can go to arunaproject.com and then there's just up at the top um there's okay. a there's a, a little place right there where you can click and drop down and, and okay apply. well i'm glad you said that because i thought that I, I had looked at that but i only saw the shopping part of it so i didn't realize there was more on that site yeah all right well i made you really talk a lot but honestly <laughs> there's a lot to unravel and understand and uh i feel so much lighter knowing from you know whence they came to where they are and and the opportunity to do so much more is just really now ramping up in a major way so uh i really encourage people to to support you as best they can and and learn more and thank you so much for spending this time with me and uh our listeners and giving you something to be very, very hopeful about and grateful for. So thank you. Well, thanks, Deborah. And thank you for, for being a voice for the young women that we're working with. It's mm -hmm. you're, you're helping to amplify their voice. And so yeah. thank you for doing that. All right. Thanks. All right. Take care and keep on keeping on, please. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Right.